Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, good to be back with you, Shiloh. We are discussing sections 85, 86, and 87 today of the Doctrine and Covenants. These are... There's not there's not a whole lot probably related in these sections. There uh, there's not a single theme, so we're going to kind of take them one at a time. I would have to say that section eighty five, and when I first read through it, I was like, "What is this even talking about? I don't even know what to do with this section." And so I kind of like just set it aside and I went on with eighty six and eighty seven. And then I came back and I'm like, "Okay, I." I got to have something. We can't just skip a whole section. I got to have something to say about 85. (laughs) (laughs) And so I read it again and it was still like, there's, this doesn't make any sense. There's nothing here. But at the very end, there's this little clue that, uh, that kind of once I got that opened it up a little bit more for me, it's because there's this, uh, reference to the book of Ezra and, you know, it's this total like goading into, looking it up right because it just tells you the chapter and verse it doesn't tell you what (laughs) what what those chapter and verse are it says oh this will happen to them read that verse and that's what's going to happen and it's like you have to go look it up after you read that right like it's it's totally like you know look at this verse and that'll tell you what i'm going to do to you (laughs) so you have to go look it up so what I did is I went and looked that verse up in, in Ezra and I was like, oh, okay, so this is this is going to happen. They're going to be, quote, put from the priesthood. Well, why is that? So I was like, okay, Ezra, Ezra, I was thinking you, back. Ezra is, think. is uh, he's, the book of Ezra is this rebuilding of the temple after the return from the Babylonian exile. And I knew that, but there were a bunch of other things that I had either, either I didn't know or had forgotten since I, I looked back at this stuff previously about Ezra. Now, in the Jewish tradition, Ezra himself is not considered a prophet, which I thought was kind of interesting. Because if you got a book in the Bible named after you, generally you're going to be considered a prophet, right? <laughs> Especially in like uh, Latter-day Saint tradition. Yeah, you'd think. But uh, but Ezra's not necessarily considered a prophet. The prophet at this time, I believe, uh, was Haggai or Haggai, however you pronounce that. Ezra, rather, is a Levite that decides to regulate and set in order all of these things of the people after they've returned from the Babylonian exile. You know, they've, they've been in Babylon. They've A lot of them have kind of lost their religion, so to speak, right? You know, they've lost a lot of those traditions that they had followed previously. The people that have been left behind in Jerusalem – Similar things that happened there. They they kind of they were they were the poor that that uh, there wasn't really much that they had to go on, and so a lot of these traditions were lost and familiarity with scripture. So you know when they come back, Ezra says, "Okay, well we're going to read the Torah all the time, and we're going to you know do this and this and this and this." And then Cyrus, the Persian 
he says, okay, we're going to Cyrus the Great. He tells the Jews, oh, yeah, you can build a temple. And he actually even gives them the money to do it. And so um, Cyrus is considered like in Jewish tradition as this great, great man. And actually, historically, you, you study him and he did quite a few amazing things. So so they're building, they're going to go back and start building this temple. So this is kind of the time of Ezra. As I'm thinking about that whole context of everything that's going on, they're returning back to their land. They're putting everything back in order and setting things like they're supposed to be, reestablishing the covenant. There's this point where Ezra says, okay, if if there's anybody who has married outside the covenant, their children can't have the priesthood, right? And they either have to, their wives either have to convert or they have to put away their wives and they have to get different wives. Anyway, so there's this all like, like purity of tradition <laughs> and lineage and genealogy all with inside the covenant, right? And you go and you read the whole book of Ezra and you kind of get in the Ezra, book of Ezra mindset, so to speak. And then you come and read section 85 and it just like, oh, okay, that's what's going on here. Joseph Smith is like channeling Ezra, right? <laughs> and and you think, okay, Joseph Smith was definitely reading the book of Ezra right before he wrote this letter to W.W. Phelps. <laughs> so this section is an excerpt from the letter to W.W. Phelps. If you go into the app... Uh, the Gospel Library app, and you go to Joseph Smith's Revelations, you can actually read either the whole or the majority of the the full letter that basically just has a few more salutations to to William W. Phelps and and a little bit more context to some things. So, so if you're interested in really a little bit more of how this was all put together and how this was all pieced out and put in here as section 85, then you might want to go read that. It give you a little more, might be a little more interesting, or maybe it'd be boring. I don't know what'll happen when you read it. But anyway, you you go that and, and you read that, and then you come to section eighty five, and you're like, okay, this is what's going on. This is all very Ezra ish, right? Um, in fact, you, you know this whole hot button phrase that we get in verse seven, and it shall come to pass that I, the Lord God, will send one mighty and strong, holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be fountain of truth, to set in order the house of God, and to arrange by lot the inheritance of the saints, whose names are found, and the names of their fathers and of their children, enrolled in the book of the law of God. Okay, this is like book of Ezra talk here. You know, this is literally what Ezra did, and literally what he was telling his people needed to happen in order to get everything back in order. This is how the Jews reestablished themselves in the land after the Babylonian exile. You know, uh, I think sort of an elementary, early studying the gospel scriptures type of mentality, I, I thought the Old Testament was just chronological, right? Or the books were chronological. The next book you read, the book before that happened in time previous to it. And that's not the case. They're divided up into sections and You've got the the law and the prophets and then the writings. And so the law is the most authoritative, then the prophets, and then the writings. And this is kind of how the Jewish tradition divides these things up. And it's not, you know, within that, there's some chronological order, but it's not strictly chronological. For instance, chronologically, Ezra happens way after Isaiah because Isaiah is before the the Babylonian exile, but in the in the Old Testament, Ezra is placed way before the Book of Isaiah. Kind of makes sense in the context of the Book of Mormon, where we have Christ coming to the Nephites and saying, "Hey, you don't you don't have these these things, so here's these writings." 
because what we find out is that there's um, quite a few Jewish scholars who believe that Ezra is actually Malachi. And that was actually one of the more interesting things that I discovered in reading up a little bit on Ezra, is that uh, Malachi is a title that means my messenger, and that a lot of, I wouldn't say consensus, but there's a strong view that Ezra is actually Malachi. And so that Ezra wrote the book of Malachi. And so it kind of makes sense. You know, he's after the Babylonian exile. Malachi talks about returning to the covenant, right? And putting the house in order and and tithing and offerings, you know, all these things, you've got to return back to these covenants and these things. That was Ezra's whole thing. Then we have the end of the book of Malachi, which talks about Elijah returning and restoring you know, all these things. And then in Joseph Smith's context, he takes that to mean priesthood, and then it gets applied to temple work. It's very interesting how that all fits in with this mentality that we have here of priesthood and the building of the temple and the gathering of the saints in Zion. You can you really start seeing Joseph Smith's mentality and his vision at this time when reading through this section 85, if you get the context of the book of Ezra. And without it, I think section 85 makes very little to no sense to me. So I thought that was be really important for somebody. If you want to understand section 85, I think you need to go and and at least skim through the book of Ezra and, and it'll give you a some some context there. That was supposed to be an introduction of section 85, but I just went through the whole thing, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting. <laughs> well, I'm going to hand it over to you for section 86 then, Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds good. Well, also in verse 8, uh, I was going to put out, you know, this, this is a famous phrase too, right? While that man who was called of God and appointed that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God shall fall by the shaft of death like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning. <laughs> yeah, who's that man? Ooh. Who's that man, right? And, you know, Probably so the, Oliver Cowdery, right? <laughs> yeah. So we have we at here this the, time. Yeah, at this time. We have this uh steady the ark idea. And you know, this is really interesting because, you know, in the Old Testament we have the story of the guy who puts his hand up on the ark to steady it, because it's it's you know, the wagon's wobbling, right? And it's it's gonna possibly tip over or they slip and they're gonna fall. And so he reaches up to hold it, to brace it, keep it from falling, and he's not authorized to touch it, so he's basically just He dies. Struck it. He dies, right? Yeah. That's and the so, that's the punishment for anything you do wrong in the Old Testament. You die. <laughs> you die. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you do, if you die if you did something really bad then dogs devour your flesh yeah right. and, and so that's like the worst of the worst this I think it's interesting is this concept of studying the ark you know and how these stories are created because if he wasn't around or if he was there and he just let the ark fall over I, I imagine this guy may have been strenuously putting up and just had a heart attack from the strenuousness of it he falls down dead from a heart attack and everyone's like oh God killed him. But if he wouldn't have put his hand up and it would have fallen over and you would have had the heart attack, then then a whole other myth would have started, right? Yeah. Of like, if, if you don't support God, then God will kill you or, or you know, whatever it's going to be, right? Sure, sure. So the, these stories, I love how these Old Testament stories are formed. And just to think about what's actually going on versus the myth of how they're they're trying to use these stories. Because it's it's not always, and even in church history, we learn that... It's not just what is being said, but it's almost more important how we tell our stories. And we've brought up a lot that there's no such thing as objective history because it's 
what you include in history is as much important as what you leave out. And so what's left in, what's left out, and so especially in the Old Testament text where a lot of these stories and meanings are brought forward and they're carried from generation down to generation to generation, and the longer these stories are carried, the more validity they seem to and weight they seem to have, right? Because why would bad ideas tend to come down generation after generation after generation? We tend to think that only good ideas are able to be, are able to be hmm. put forward that long, right? And we've talked about this before, but one of the things that I've loved about the message that I've seen that God is trying to communicate here is that this is not Joseph's message. This is not Oliver's message. This isn't the missionary's message. This isn't their work. This is God's work. God has been doing this. God is the one who planted the seeds. He's the one who fertilized. He's the one who irrigated. He's the one who, who went through and made the furrows. He, he made everything. He's done everything. You know that old analogy of, of the chicken, right? Who, who goes through and plants the seed and waters it and keeps on asking everybody to come out and help until finally it's ready to bake or it's ready to eat. Little red hen. Little red hen, yeah. And it, it's almost like that story, but God is right there at the very end, and he's, and he's willing to be the little red hen, almost to the point of baking it, where he's like, hey, do you guys want to come in to help me to do this? The field's already white, ready to harvest. Like, like we're right. I've done everything. I haven't even asked you if you want. I've been, we're right there at the very end. Do you want to do it? And just seeing what we want to do. And, and, and I think I have to keep reminding myself of seeing that over and over again, that this is God's work. And God keeps on bringing the people into that conversation. I think that's pretty awesome. Section 86 is fascinating. And I love what Section 86 offers because it really adds to Matthew 13. Because there's a parable here of the wheat and the tares. And the wheat and the tares allegory or parable or whatever you want to call it. This is, I think, a, <laughs> a parable that we've gotten wrong a lot of the time. And, and I think when we finally kind of start to get this right, it's beautiful. And when we get it wrong, we get it very, very wrong. <laughs> so, so, And you're going to tell us exactly how And I'm going right. to tell you exactly how it is. <laughs> no. Well, so this is, this is how I'm coming at, coming at it. Um, and maybe in 10 years, I'm going to listen back to this and be like, yeah, <laughs> you're an idiot. No, but, but how, how, I'm, well, how this is presenting itself to me right now is there's something that's always landed sideways for me in how I've heard this parable talked about a lot of the time. And that is, and I'm just going to read the, the version out of, out of Matthew first, because yeah. I, think that, uh, I think that gives you a good basis to then talk about how the DNC is kind of making it something new. But in, in Matthew 13, 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the household came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt will thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay. Lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest, and in time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so that's Matthew's version. 
Now, DNC 86 is a lot like that, but it, it talks about Satan. And as, I, <laughs> and as I've said before, whenever I see Satan now, I, I perk up a little bit because I, and I'm like, oh, look, there's Satan. Cause, cause it's, it's a topic I'm studying, uh, uh more professionally. I, I don't even know if I can say that. Can I say more profession? I'm studying it academic, <laughs> academically. I'm studying, I'm studying sure. Satan academically. <laughs> um, the intellectual history of Satan. You have say to that. say academically. Otherwise, have, you just say, I'm studying Satan. It's just not a good way to go. <laughs> That's just not a good way to talk about it. I, I think I said it before, but it was really funny. Is It is from our podcast of about 3rd Nephi 9 and 10. I, I've, I've been on this thing of like really trying to understand the archetype of Satan, and I've mm-hmm. learned some amazing things. And and in doing that, I started to order books about the, the intellectual issue. And these are all university press books, right? And, and so all of a sudden my wife started noticing this, a new wave of books coming in and she started opening them up. And like the first two or three, they're like, ah, you know, cause I'll order like a couple one-off books that are a little weird. And she's like, Hey, your books here. And she kind of gives me a smirk because it's a weird book. But in this particular case, like three and four and five and six books came in and all of a sudden she's like, Sh- Shiloh is, is there something you need to tell me? <laughs> What's going on? And so anyway, it's been, it's been a fun time. But anyway, here in, in section 86, verse three, it says, and after they have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon that maketh all nations to drink of her, of her cup in whose hearts, the enemy, even Satan sitteth to reign. Behold, he soweth the tares, wherefore the tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness. But behold, in the last days, Even now, while the Lord is beginning to bring forth the word, and the blade is springing up and is yet tender, behold, verily I say unto you, the angels are crying unto the Lord day and night, who are ready and waiting to be sent forth to reap down the fields. But the Lord saith unto them, Pluck not up the tares while the blade is yet tender, for verily your faith is weak, lest you destroy the wheat also. Therefore, let the wheat and the tares grow together, until the harvest is full, fully ripe. Then you shall gather out the wheat from among the tares, and after the gathering of the wheat, behold and lo, the tares are bound in bundles, and the field remaineth to be burned. All right, so a few things here. The way I've heard this explained countless times is that we use this parable to make people the wheat and the tares. And what inadvertently happens by doing this is it immediately... As if some people are wheat and some people are tares. Yes, exactly. And what this immediately does is this immediately otherizes everyone from us. Because no person that I've ever known of has ever deemed themselves the wicked one, right? <laughs> at, at, at least the, the ones who, who think themselves so righteous, who think they're wheat, you know, when we think of our political opinions, can you imagine a Democrat acquiescing to a Republican or a Republican acquiescing to a Democrat? I mean, like, you know what? You're absolutely right. Your candidate was absolutely the right choice, right? <laughs> that just, that doesn't happen. Because when you immediately posit that you have the truth, that you are the wheat, that you are that thing which brings forth the good fruit, everything that is not in agreement with you is automatically the tear. And it's funny because the people who you consider the tear are doing the exact same thing to you because they're the wheat in their mind and you're the tear. And we divide ourselves with this way of thinking. And so anything that is not us in 
the LDS Church, we consider tear. And we even go further than that. Because I've lost count the discussions on this where even within like church discussions, church members will call each other tares who don't who maybe disagree with them politically or over other things that are not uh, church related. And that's just not what this scripture is, I believe, trying to bring out. I don't believe that Christ in Matthew or here in section 86 is talking about the people as wheat and tares. I don't think this is an exter external discussion talking about people. Like with the parables, there's a couple clues here that I think are given that tell us that this is all about a personal discussion about who and what we are personally. I think this is, it, it's like with the parable of Ma in Matthew, we are a one-person show playing every single role. So we are the, the man who sowed the field. We are mm -hmm. the servants. We're the enemy who sowed it. We're the wheat. We're the tares. We're the field that's left ready to be burned. We play every single individual part. And when we put ourselves into that category and we place ourselves into that, what then is present for us and how does that parable then come alive in a new way? If we think about ourselves as the enemy that plants the seeds of the tares, what does that say about us? What becomes manifest when we when, when we think that, like, and what are the tares? You know, it's it's that whole concept of you know, and I posted on social media, and I'm going to butcher it, but it it said something to the effect of Jesus commanded me to love my enemy, so I obeyed him and I loved myself. And it's that kind of concept that sometimes we are our own worst enemy. And there has to be this time where we begin to love ourselves, where we, we begin to see the enemy from within. And so in one way, I look at wheat and tares, and I don't think this is the only way to look at it. I think it's just one of many ways to look at it. But I look at wheat and tares recently as ideas. That God will let us grow you know, if, if we're the analogy of, of, of the field and the field is growing and, and maybe God right now is the, is, the, is the Lord of the vineyard and he's letting us grow and we are both the wheat and the tares in the field, he's going to let these ideas within us grow together. And some of these ideas are good and will produce good fruit. And some of these ideas won't produce fruit. They look like they're identical to the ones next to them. And as we go along in our lives and as we grow, some ideas produce good fruit and others we see are not. But what I love about both of these is that there's no condemnation for the weed and the tear. We assume condemnation because we assume the burning, because the tares are taken out first and burned. And the burning we always associate because we like to really use our Protestant interpretations of burning as though that's punishment, as opposed to using the understanding that the burning is a sanctification. And re, that conversation that we've used before about the reincorporating the ash back into the soil and that, re, and that reincorporates itself back it's into the It's a preparation life. as part of a cycle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so in that way, we're also the ash. Being ring, you know, that part of our life that is burned has been sanctified and is now being reincorporated back into our lives. And so when we look at our lives and we look at these stories and these experiences that we have and the ideas that we have that we hold on to as truth, 
And some of these ideas really do produce good fruit. But some of these ideas don't. But God is not there to condemn us for the bad. Yeah, yes, he, an enemy hath done this. An enemy has sown it. But in this context, Christ has told us to love our enemy. And because we are playing every part, he realizes that we are the enemy. And so even when we have the enemy who's planted the tares, and we've incorporated these ideas together and they've grown together, it shows the mercy of God in letting us grow with these ideas, with, with certain experiences and ideas and ways of being, and allowing us the moments of transformation. And what is present for me with looking at it this way is the infinite and unjudgmental love of God. Because God's not there prosecuting. And in fact, here in verse 3 where it says, they've fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church. Well, Satan, the original idea of Satan, and this goes back to Job, the original idea of Satan in Hebrew from the Old Testament, the idea of an evil being called Satan that was like the embodiment of evil didn't exist until after the Jews had returned to Jerusalem. You know, In 600 BC, when Le Lehi and Nephi leave Jerusalem and they're carried away captive into Babylon, over the course of about 70 years, they return back to Jerusalem by way of Persia, just, just like what you were talking about. Yeah, just that. like what you were talking about. Just like you were talking 85. about with yep. uh, 85. And they come back, but in that time frame, the Jews come into contact with Zoroastrianism. Mm -hmm. And Zoroastrianism is up in Persia, up in, up in Asia and up, up in, in, in that area. And Zoroastrianism is the first major religion that we can document that has created the embodiment of evil. They, they have a God that embodies evil. And the Jews bring that idea back to them, and it's only after they return back to Jerusalem that we begin to see in the literature where Satan begins to take on an ontological being of evil. Because prior to that, when, like when, for instance, when Satan is in heaven with, with the whole Job story, we've often wondered, well, how did Satan get into heaven? Because we've, we've, we, we consider this embodiment of evil somehow sneaking into heaven. We're like, how did he get in there? Well, in the original understanding, Satan is, is not an evil incarnate being. Satan is the accuser. He's the prosecuting attorney in the courtroom of God. He's the accuser. He's, he's the guy who accuses. He's the prosecuting. He, he's the one who brings charges against those who are doing. And when he looks at Job, he says, hey, you think this guy is so good, but he's not as good as you think he is. Satan is literally doing what Satan is supposed to do. He's a prosecutor. He's an accuser. He's telling God that this guy is not as good as you think this guy is. And God's like, no, he is. And the prosecutor's like, no, I don't think so. And God's like, let me show you. And that's how the story unfolds, is the prosecutor and God, who is, you know, we later learn that Christ is our advocate with the Father. Christ is our defending attorney with the Father. We become the judge who gets to listen to who we're going to listen to, the accuser, or we're going to listen to the advocate, our advocate. We get to choose which voice we're going to listen to. And so when you take this back to section 86, we see here, and after they have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the earth, the apostate, the whore, even Satan, he soweth the tares. And how often is it that the ideas that we hold as true are the ideas 
that guilt us, that shame us, that tell us how unworthy we are, who who show all of all of the sin and all of the bad things that we are our sin, and all of these things that keep us from recognizing what we have always already been created, that image that was created in the image of God. And so I look at the juxtaposition here between Satan, the prosecuting attorney, the accuser, and the advocate, because the advocate is not prosecuting us. He's not, he's not there condemning us. We let the wheat and the tares grow together. And when harvest time comes, we can see where the good ideas are. We can see where the good comes and we can harvest that. And then it's almost like with every season, there's a rinse and a repeat. We burn the field, we sanctify it, and we start over again. It's a beautiful story about how we enter this relationship with God in letting our ideas grow. And here with the angels, and then Ben, I want to get your, your ideas about this. With the angels, it, it's interesting is that he, it's almost as if there's these, these people who want to come, who can see the tears in advance. And he's like, you know, let's go out and just like reap the whole field. Let's just like go out and just like, it's, there's got to be some bad stuff in there. Let's just go get rid of all of it. And God's like, no, 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 no. Let it grow. Let it do its thing. And for me, at least, what's present for me there is, I know I'm guilty of this, and that's the prosecutor. That's my own prosecuting accuser pointing its finger at myself. <laughs> but there are times when I see the mote in my neighbor's eye, and I don't realize the beam in my own. I'm the angel who wants to go, basically, try to 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 take my neighbor's. Yard, his wheat and his tares and just cut it all down and tell him, you know what? You've got a lot of tares in your, in your field and I want yeah. to come in there and tear them all down for you. And God's like, no, 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 no. You let your neighbor be your neighbor and you take care of the beam that's in your own eye. You go take care of your own tares and wheat, right? So I, I look at these angels, these messengers, they want to go because they, they want to go over there and because they can see clearly everybody else's sins, right? but they can't see their own. And so, and that's what I see here with that is they want to go down and they want to take care of that field, but yet God lets everything grow and come to the surface so that we can then learn how to then see the good from the tear, harvest what needs to be harvested and then reincorporate what needs to be reincorporated. So I think that's a really good insight for this section. It's, it's just, you know, right along the lines of saying, Hey, we are each character in this allegory here. We can put ourselves in each one of these places and, and say, okay, if I'm this person or if I'm this, what what do I take away from that? What does that mean about me? It just kind of reminds me of that that statement of the apostles and they said, Lord, is it I? Right? You can look at this story and say, is this me? Or is this me? Right? It's not a mechanism of condemnation. It's a mechanism mechanism of self-examination. To say, what? How am I sometimes like this, or how am I sometimes like this? How am I playing this role, and what what is it that I really, you know, is the real me? That it's the part that I really should be playing here, right? So a few things. the The last phrase in verse three really kind of sticks out to me here. It says, "The tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness." The wilderness isn't some place we typically want to go, but it's somewhere 
we often have to go because we look at scriptural accounts of of the church going into the wilderness, right? Quote unquote, the church, the people of the Lord. You know, we've got the Israelites, we got like Nephi. The Book of Mormon has half a dozen examples of this repeating over. Wilderness is the is the symbolic representation of the chaos we're entering into. You have the order and then you enter into that chaos. It's the cycle that you go through in order for death and rebirth, right? It's this is all this is all symbolic and representative of this whole same process that we experience as, as individuals, dying and being reborn, the thing we symbolize with baptism and so forth. In some uh, mythological sense, we've got the this is represented by the phoenix, right? The phoenix is that bird that that uh, you know bursts into flames and then is reborn from the ashes, so to speak, right? So that's us dying and, and being reborn all the time. So uh, that this concept of the church going in the wilderness, we, we sometimes might look at this as a negative thing, like a bad thing, like a step backwards, right? But it's not a step backwards. It's it's just part of the cycle. Like this actually is a necessary part of the cycle of quote unquote progression for for this to to happen. And so in order to sort of drive the story forward, so to speak, right, there has to be a going into the wilderness. Just because the the way that it came about isn't necessarily desirable doesn't mean that it doesn't have to happen. It's almost like uh, it, it really fits in with our um, with the fall, right? They had they that's what they were. They were driven into the lone and dreary world, right? So we look at the fall as this like. Could be looked at from a negative sense, but then in Latter-day Saint theology, we also look at it as, well, yeah, but it was necessary. It was part of progression. It was something that had to drive the story forward, right? This is the next part of the story. You can't just stop. <laughs> and so that I think that's an interesting point to be made there, that that this is this is simply a, a telling of the story. It's not necessarily a, a sad or a negative part of it. I really like the point you you brought out about the angels and how that's kind of us sometimes looking to others and and saying, "Hey, you need to change this." I I, <laughs> I think a lot of times about how I'm I'm going to say this happens with my wife, but it happens with with me as well. You know, my wife may come to me with with some particular frustration or something that's going on that's that's uh, really stressing her out, and what she really needs is for me to just listen to her and say, and that's really hard. I know. Right. What, what did we decide Shiloh all those years ago? I know it's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I love you. Something like that. Right. So there's things you say, right? <clears throat> it's not, this sometimes uh, gets, gets uh, touted as like a, a female or a woman thing, but the, this is, this is not uniquely uh, women that do this. Um, <laughs> Everybody does this. No, yeah, this is this is a this yeah, this is not a husband placating a wife thing. This is no, no, a, just no, a not human emotion. This is yep. just whenever anybody yep. has any kind of trauma or they come to you with a, a need, it just listen and be with them, right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, that 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 covenant to mourn with those that mourn, right? Is is really I think kind of borne out in this that that you let those tears and weak grow up. Like you're there for the person talking with them, mourning with them, because they're working through this. And if you jump in and start saying, well, this is wheat and this is tares, it messes up the whole process, right? You start, you start pulling out wheat with tares. 
but if you're if you're there, you're mourning with them, you're staying with them, and you're letting them work through that process. Those wheat and tares are growing up, and they themselves are figuring out what is wheat and what is tares. You cannot do that for them. All you can do is mourn with them and be there for them, and and that's what helps. Not not necessarily identifying those things for them. So I really really like how that plays out in this in this parable here, this allegory, there's just, there's really great depth to it. And, and I think applying it at an, at an individual psychological spiritual level is much more profound and meaningful than like trying to take it into some like, um, cosmological, uh, metaphysical sense where it's applying to groups of people. It's not applying, uh, in, in such a significant way, in my opinion, to groups of people as it is to our own, psychological or spiritual condition or individual, I should say. Yeah. And I will also add that one of the other evidences there that stand out to me is in Matthew 13, when it says the kingdom of heaven is like that. That's Mm. what we're talking about. It's it's the kingdom of heaven is like this. In the kingdom of heaven, there's this wheat and tear. Yeah. And the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven is within you, right? Or it's among you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it goes back to the Beatitudes, right? You know, it's the very first one. He that is the poor in spirit inherits the kingdom of heaven. And the same thing for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Those who start on the Beatitude path are in the kingdom of heaven. And and what is that like? Well, let me tell you what that's like. And so all of the parables that start off the kingdom of heaven is like, is Jesus Christ telling us this is what it's like to walk the Beatitude path. This poverty of spirit, this 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 emptying and the mourning and the meekness and the being hungering and 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 being filled and the mercy and the pure and the pure love to see the face of God and the being a peacemaker and even being persecuted and then starting the whole thing over again. It's this journey of of the the beatitude person where we ask for we ask for examples like like what is this like what what is this like to live this. And then Christ gives us parables where he's, he's like, well, it's likened to this. And so when we start to take these stories and that's why we put ourselves into every single character of the, of the parable, because the, it's, it's all about us. And, and it's, it's like doing temple work, right? Because we have four main ordinances in the temple, baptism, the initiatory, the endowment, and the sealing. And each and every single one of them, we can, we can do each one of those ordinances in and of themselves and we you know we can go down there we can just do one ordinance and leave one ritual and then leave but the fact is is the whole thing is a story it's all connected it starts with baptism and then it goes through the initiatory it goes to the endowment and it goes through and through the ceiling and and that's the whole idea is is there's an a story arc and that story arc is our life it's the way that we progress through life it's the it's a story of our own internal nature. So when Christ says to the Pharisees, Sadducees, that if you tear down this temple, you know, he's pointing to the, the temple of Herod, tear it down, I will rebuild it in three days. And they think he's actually talking about the edifice, the, you know, the temple temple, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, no, 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 no. You've heard, you've just said it. You just said it, but you haven't understood what I'm saying because he meant himself. He recognized that the temple was symbolic of us, of ourselves. And everything that goes on inside the temple is symbolic of what goes on in our own lives. And so in the same way, these parables, we play the one role part in each one of these parables 
because it's about us. It's about our journey. Each one of those characters is representing a certain aspect of our character about what it entails into the Beatitude path. This this whole concept and and way of sort of applying this hermeneutic to this section really is is wrapped up nicely by the last verse of the section. So verse 11 on the next page says, Therefore, blessed are ye, there's beatitude language here, right? Blessed are ye if ye continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood, Remember how we, you know, the priesthood, it, it's constantly referenced in these sections here. This, this, con- this idea is being developed right now of what this really is. And it's, it's evolving from simply this, this thing that you ordained to in order to perform particular responsibilities when in the church. It's evolving into a, a mode of worship for coming into a knowledge of God. And so it, it's expanding in, in its definition here. So, and through this priesthood, a savior unto my people Israel. The Lord hath said it, amen. I mean, here, a savior unto my people, in other words, you know, we're called to be Christ's, right? In that sense of taking upon ourselves his name. And so I just like how it says that, blessed are ye if you continue in my goodness. And I think it wraps up the concept you're talking about there. Yeah, I think that's awesome. You know, this concept of light into the Gentiles, that does go right back into the Beatitude because right after the Beatitudes, you have, you're the light of the the earth, right? You're, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. And this light of the world, you know, I think it's kind of unfortunate that Winthrop, that <laughs> <laughs> At the early beginning of the Puritans, it, it, it Winthrop ends up taking this phrase of the of the light of the world, and he ends up applying it to this whole what becomes this American manifest destiny, right? Of bringing the marriage of Americana with Christianity into the whole westward progression, and sadly, the Christian all Christian religions that have been affected by Americana have largely bought into it, and, and including even in a lot of parts of our own culture. Because if you go in through the citation index and you look into the Sermon on the Mount scriptures and what Sermon on the Mount scriptures have been used in general conference, the one that has been used more than anything else is a scripture about being a light on the hill. And this light to the world and this light on the hill is always used in the context of some form of Americana of bringing this forth to to the American people and in context usually of, of, uh, of how that constitutional and constitutionalism came about when when we look at these scriptures the light here is i don't see a lot of american americanism or americana or constitutionalism for as much as the church talks about that and you and i man we've had years and years and decades of discussion on this but in this particular frame of mindset i don't see a lot of discussion of constitutionalism in the in the beatitudes <laughs> right <laughs> in that beatitude path it it it's as about it as misplaced as if you were to start talking about the preamble of the constitution in the endowment ceremony. You're like, like, huh, you know, that might be true, but that's not the place to talk about it here. <laughs> like that doesn't, it's got its time and place and that's not right now. And so we equivocate on what this means, this light. And so I like how they put it here, this light into the Gentiles and the context of light in the Gentiles is through this kingdom of heaven 
parable of the wheat and the tares. You know, what really differentiates a truly peaceable follower of Christ from the Gentiles? It's not someone who's simply gone into the waters of baptism, has come out and decided to stay the same person. It's someone who proactively walks this path, who empties themselves and mourns with Christ and, 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 and then is meek and then Christ shows the way. That's that path. And once we've emptied ourselves and, we, and we've received mercy and we've seen the face of God, because we understand what God is trying to do in our lives and what he's trying to do in the lives of the other. And suddenly, just like King Benjamin said, that when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. And we really begin to see the face of God in the other, which is another reason why I don't think this wheat and tares analogy in this parable here is trying to talk about people as wheat and tares. Because we have to begin to serve. When we serve other people, we're really serving God. And when we're serving God, we're really serving the other. And we begin to see the image of God in the other. We see the humanity in the other. Yeah. And, and so that really, and then it starts to be the savior of my people, Israel. Because the Beatitudes there are about the mercy, the peacemaker, bringing other people in. You know, if, if there is a gathering of Israel that I think has really any meaning, it's this. Because yeah. it's that Beatitude path that we recognize that we've emptied that ego, we've emptied those attachments to the world, we've emptied the stories, the narratives, the myths, the ethos, everything of the world and its governments and its societies and its cultures, we've emptied all of that out, and we've let God take over. We let go, as there's a famous Christian phrase, we let go and let God. And we come into the conversation with God as opposed to trying to bring God into the conversation with us. And in doing that, we try to have God's image on our countenance instead of our image on God's countenance. And that's when we recognize that Christ has called us to sacrifice for the other in the same way that by taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, we walk with Christ to Calvary and we sacrifice for each other for the same reason he did in whereas he did it in infinite and eternal ways we, we typically do it in temporal and finite ways but yet we find ourselves still suffering and sacrificing for each other for the same purposes and reasons and in that we become saviors to to our fellow men you know for some reason when we're reading this Scripture, a light to the unto the Gentiles, and then there's the phrase from Matthew, you know, ye are the light of the world. It it made me think of um, the part in um, when uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes about his self examination, realizing, you know, not to to get too much into the weeds on that, but basically he, he, he comes to a lot of realizations, but he comes to a realization that there really is no way to calculate the impact for good that an individual can have on the world. That really the, the light that a single individual could bring to the world is Im impossible to really measure. And, and the opposite could be true as well. You know, the, the, the evil that a single person could, could bring about as well. Um, but I just, I thought about that in, in that sense that, 
that we really have that capacity uh, within us to to be a light to others, and it's not like a it, it's a calling, right? It, there's not a condemnation um, implied in it. It's simply a calling to be who we really are, but not a condemnation. Otherwise, we we might condemn ourselves or accuse ourselves, right, as playing that part of Satan. But rather, there's again no no really way to calculate or 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 no limit to the the good that a single individual could could bring about if that person were to follow truly follow the way that Christ taught. Yeah, I like what you said there. I, I would also maybe include it as an invitation. Yeah. And, you know, an invitation into this because if if we posit that God invites us into this conversation but then he punishes us if we don't come into it with him. Right. That's not an invitation. That's manipulation. Right. That, that's a form of coercion. That falls into that realm of what Satan is. It, it's the, the accusation of what we've done wrong. Because if God calls us into the invitation of being with him, then even if we say, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to be, I, you can call it a calling. You know, he calls us into this or he invites us into this. And, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because they don't come to it. Cho- being chosen means that you've decided to come into that conversation. Yeah, it's not arbitrary. <laughs> yeah, it's not arbitrary. Right? It's, it's not this God has already segmented who's going to come into where and what how. It's right. this recognition that it, there's always the open invitation. And we get to choose how we come into that. And by the way, God is always present. And it goes back to that concept, though, that we're always already worthy because we're always already made in the image of God. We just have the perception that we're not. So, yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I love that concept of, of the invitation of God, but it's he's not going to punish us if we don't. And I think that's another reason why when you, when you originally brought up last year, when you were talking about third Nephi and, uh, and we're talking about that first voice that comes and we're like, I don't know if that's Jesus or not. And, and that's still a pretty controversial. People are still talking about that. I, I still run into a few <laughs> chats on social media and people are still talking about that. But uh, it, you know, if anyone who's, who hasn't listened to that, I guess I'll catch you up a little bit. But uh, but Ben Ben and I were talking about uh, about Jesus coming to visit the inhabitants in in the Americas in Third Nephi, and and of course we know the destruction and we know everything that happens there, and then the the first voice comes and it talks about all the destruction that happens and I, this I have caused to happen and this I caused this city to happen I did this. And then it says, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wing, and you would not. And because of that, I he goes on to list all the th- reasons why God destroyed all the people. And I, I was like, how do I how do I talk about this? You know, and I've even talked to several Mormon scholars about this who are actually nonviolent scholars, and and they're like, yeah, I don't know how to deal with this one either. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so Ben and I were talking about it and, and Ben says, I think I have an idea. I'm like, all right, what's your idea? He's like, okay, well, hear me out. Hear me out. What if the voice is not actually Jesus? That very first voice that's accusing and condemning is not actually Jesus. What if it's Satan? And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
I was like, that can't possibly be. And, you, and so it, I, you texted it to me the first time. And so we sat down. Uh, we were talking about it beforehand. And, and I'm like, we can't talk about that. You know, like, that's not something we could talk about on a podcast. We can't talk about that and put that out there. You know, that doesn't make any sense. And then you're like, well, hear me out. And then you went off on a, just a few things. And you, I think you had like two or three different reasons for, for your idea behind that. And then it was like dominoes for me. And like it, so many things clicked into place. I was like, well, it's about this and about this and about this and about this. And you're like, yeah. And, and then you were like, yeah, about this and this. So anyway, when it came time to record, you were like, well, we're about halfway through. And I don't even think we had actually formally talked into decided whether or not we're going to talk about it or not. And then we're like, well, I guess we're going to do this. So we went ahead and did it. So <laughs> if, if anybody's interested, go back to listen to the podcast about Third Nephi. Um, we introduced a few ideas about how possibly the the voice that comes from heaven that's identified as Jesus. And, and, and I understand all the problems. Believe me, I understand all the problems about why it can't possibly be anything else other than Jesus. But there's also a lot of really interesting evidences there that suggest that that voice may not be everything that we think it is in Third Nephi 9 and 10. Because when Christ comes and he's introduced by the Father, the voice is different and it carries a different impact. And uh, the whole tone is different and the message is different. Anyway, go listen to that. But th that was that discussion that really got me interested into understanding Satan and the intellectual history about where Satan came from and to understand the archetype of Satan. And that's been a really fascinating journey for me personally over the last year as, we, as I've been studying that. Um, and I really have only really scratched the surface, the very tip of the iceberg with that conversation. But when we start talking about the accuser, that thing in our lives, because there's two conversations about Satan, it really kind of starts with this inner conversation, that accusing voice that's within us. That, that was really kind of that, that first concept of Satan, that accusing voice. And then we turned it outwards, and that's over time where we eventually created the idea of the external embodiment of an evil being after about the, about the 4th century B.C. And so there's just so much here to talk about this idea of Satan with how it's accusing, but God is not accusing. So that voice that we hear inside of ourselves that, that accuses us, that is always trying to, to, to push us down and, 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 to, and to think that we're doing it wrong and to make us fear that we're deceived, that's not God. God invites. God pulls us into the conversation. And when we come to the conversation, we become aware of who we've always already been. And if we choose not to come into that conversation, well, it's like the wheat and the tares growing together. Eventually there's going to be a harvest. And guess what? And some particular, we were able to, to burn that and, and reincorporate it back in, and we're going to start over again. And that's how God works with us. And so there, I've lost my fear. I've, I think I've pretty much lost my, maybe I can't say I've lost all of my fear, but I've lost, whenever it arises, I'm able to deal with it. But the fear of being deceived, the fear of doing something wrong, the fear of going down the wrong path, I've had too many experiences with a loving God who I know will be there to catch me. And so with a sincere heart, I step forward and take each step, knowing 
that the God who loves me will always be there. You know, with the whole um, third Nephi thing, I um, I'm still not I'm still not even sure about it. I, you've definitely taken the ball. Um, <laughs> you've definitely taken the ball and, and run with it on that, and and I, and I'm totally fine with that. I think there's a whole lot of value still in in just just the consideration of the possibility, right? I think there's there's a lot that can be analyzed and learned there. But for me, it kind of comes down to possibly one of the most famous scriptures in the New Testament where Christ says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So that for me, that was, that was kind of a big moment where I realized, you know, Christ's coming wasn't to condemn. So when we see something like that, where it appears that's what's going on, there's really something else going on, and we need to step back and consider it. And I think that's a lot what Section 86 is about. What is going on here? Where am I in this? Where is Christ? And I need to step back and, and really look at that and consider it. That's where the contemplation comes in, right? It's It's not like... Someone can come and say, boom, here, this is what this scripture means. The value is just simply in in the actual consideration, contemplation, the question itself, and and whatever it is that, that that gives you. You know, of of all the things that this come follow me quote unquote curriculum has done, at the beginning of every single section or lessons, so to speak, right, is is some variation on this theme. And it's read the scriptures, read this section of scriptures, and listen to what the Holy Ghost tells you about it. I think in particular, this section was kind of interesting to me. Let me pull up what the way that this one puts it. And like I said, there are always just variations on a theme. But this section says, in, in Come Follow Me, it says, The Spirit may lead you to study principles in section 85 through 87 that are not highlighted in this outline. Follow his promptings. And if you, you basically read that first little um, sentence or two of every single section, it's basically a variation on that, on that theme, right? And um, so I, I really like how that has has been the emphasis or at least from the from the quote unquote curriculum is the emphasis whenever you go into a lesson that's i don't know most of the time i go into a lesson that point's not brought up <laughs> that you skip that first part and you jump down to okay let's see what the lesson says and it's like you missed the most important part of what the lesson actually says right right <laughs> so um I think it bears pointing that out. I don't know if we've we've done that enough. That um, just just in the the curriculum, it, I I always say that in in quote marks because because the very statement here is kind of negating a curriculum. Is you read the section and and listen to what the the spirit teaches you about it, and that is more important than anything else that you're going to read in that manual, right? 
it, that manual may give you some direction if you're interested in a particular thing or another. But ultimately, what you're going to gain from it is is what you pull from your own um, contemplation and 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 efforts. So, yeah, I agree. Well, moving on to section eighty-seven. This is an interesting. This, this is a very famous section, and and I think we can talk a little bit about it. Um, but this is the the section where Joseph has been, where people say that Joseph predicts the Civil War, mm-hmm. and I'm skeptical because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an actual Civil War, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, not for those reasons, but yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I, I think this com- this section is more interesting to me because of the other discussion we can have about how prophecy is dictated, how it is fulfilled, and then how we interpret it, and then how it's recorded and passed on. Yes, and there's a fourth layer, right? And so there are so many layers to this. And, and we just, and we, we kind of take the easiest thing and we're like, oh yeah, it fits here and here. And, and here, for those who, who believe that this is about the Civil War, there is a lot of really, really low hanging fruit as evidences that seem absolutely um, clear that this is about the Civil War. So for instance, in verse one, Verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning in the rebellion of Southern Car- of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. Well, the Civil War was first uh, was first decided right there in South Carolina, right? And the Civil War had a lot of deaths and everything. And the time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place. Well, that's kind of an interesting. That 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 second verse is kind of where I'm like, huh? What does that mean? And then verse three, for behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states. And the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called. And they shall call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And, and the war shall be poured out upon all nations. Well, okay, well, it's true. Uh, in our vernacular, the southern states rose up against the northern states over, over it depends on who you ask. 99% of people are going to say <laughs> slavery. That 1% of, uh, of historian buffs are going to say states' rights. It's going to be a discussion. That's not a discussion. Tariffs. 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 Yeah, there you go. And then uh, and then there's this uh, – the South did actually go to Great Britain. Great Britain was neutral in the fight, but it almost immediately sided with uh, with the North. So Britain did not side with the South in that. Um, but the South did ask on, on different uh, countries to help defend itself. But – it says, and then war shall be poured out upon all nations. So this is one of those those really interesting verses because it gives us some like really close specifics where we're like, oh yeah, definitely, 100% the Civil War. But then at that point, it also tells us the, you know these things like war shall be poured out upon all nations. Well, what does that mean? Immediately, eventually, a thousand years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, is it World War One? Is it World War Two? Because, you know, that's, those are the most blood, bloody wars that we fought in world history that we, that, that I mm-hmm. know of, right? I, I looked over yeah. wars over the last 600 years and that's, that's, you know, oh, by far, yeah, by, by far, right? By far. By, by far. And it shall come to pass that after many many days, slaves shall rise up against their masters who shall be marshaled and disciplined for war. 
Well, this has happened again, right? Slaves rose up against their masters, and and you had uh, former slaves that were that were fighting for the north, and and who were given their freedom. And it shall come to pass that also the remnants of who are left in the land will marshal themselves together and become exceedingly angry and shall vex the Gentiles with the sore vexation. And thus with the sword and white bloodshed, all the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn. This, and this is where things get a little bit different then again. So we have a bunch of really close specifics. We're like, oh yeah, definitely. But then we get into these kind of vague, almost like horoscope kind of vague prophecies where they're so general that they, it can be anything. And so you, right. can, you can kind of like, you know, you can, you can, throwing mud against the wall and seeing what sticks. But, sure. and, th and thus with the sword and by bloodshed, the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn and with famine and plague and earthquake and thunder in heaven and the fierce and vivid lightning. And also shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation and the chastening hand of the almighty God until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations." that the cry of the saints and the blood of the saints shall cease to come up upon the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth and the earth to be avenged of their enemies. Wherefore, stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. And behold, it come quickly, saith the Lord. Amen. So that's the whole section. Um, ben, what do you have to say about it? Well, so several things um, could, could be pulled out of this. I, I think um, you kind of alluded to this idea that this is one of those sections that can mean whatever you decide it means, right? <laughs> and so uh, there are some ways, I think, of overlaying this on history that make more sense than others. It's hard to say whether that is was the idea or conceptualization of how this would play out historically at the time this was given, but you certainly could could overlay this in a different way than I think maybe is is uh, conventionally done and it and it fits a little better with history i'm not saying that that's exactly what the prophecy was was meant to mean but but it works a little better for me in this way and and this is this is that 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 the beginning of verse 3 is could be alluding to the civil war then the sh the focus shifts to the nation of great britain as it is called and then you know we have this statement and they shall also call upon other nations and the question is what they is and it certainly they could be referring to the southern states but it could also be referring to great britain now you know like grammatically great britain is referred to just previously as it so grammatically incorrect to then refer to it as they but you know joseph smith wasn't necessarily known for his good grammar so <laughs> so they could be referring to Great Britain, in which case this could be jumping forward to World War I right here. So we have Great Britain, focus shifts to Great Britain, and they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. You know, after the Civil War, you did have this time of, of European nationalism where, uh, you know, the Germany was formed and, and all these uh, nation states started taking uh, more modern shape to them um, and name. And so then you had the creation of, of different alliances, all of which led up to what culminated in World War I. And so this idea here that nations calling on other nations defend themselves against other nations, and then war being poured out upon all nations actually overlays really pretty well with how World War I happened, if we take it this way. 
And it shall come to pass after many days, slaves shall rise up against their masters. So right, you know, right towards the end of World War One is when we have the Russian Revolution and then the outbreak of the Russian Civil War. In, in one sense, a narrative, you could look at the Russian people, especially the serfs, um, under the rule of the Russian czar as slaves. In fact, many of them were, you know, operating in those types of conditions. And especially according to a certain communist narrative, that's how they, they felt, right? These people were enslaved. So within, within a civil war context, you'd be like, oh, this is obviously talking about the institution of, of slavery, American slavery in the South. And that certainly is possible, but it could also be referring to what's going on in in Russia at the time. If this is then moving into World War I, we could be having this referring to the uprising, the Russian Revolution, who shall be marshaled and disciplined for war. Well, that's exactly what was going on. I mean, the revolution broke out during the war, so you had all of these, the military, and some of them were were mutiny, you know, uh, deserting is the right word, and and then joining the revolution, and so there then broke out this civil war. So it kind of that you know that overlays a little better than it might otherwise in in a strictly civil war context. And it shall come to pass also that the remnants who are left of the land shall marshal themselves and shall become exceedingly angry and shall vex the Gentiles with a sore vexation. So this would overlay a little bit more on the institution of. Communism as a political institution, the rise of the Soviet bloc, and so forth. You know, vex the Gentiles. You have basically the, and thus with the sword and by bloodshed, inhabitants of the earth shall mourn, and with famine and plague. You had all kinds of famines during this time. You know, tens of millions of people died um, because of this whole thing. You have China that happened after World War II. So, Anyway, th- there's a little a little more expansive way that you could overlay this on history. I I don't know. You know, it's just that was just some of my thoughts. Um, I don't know if there's <laughs> a whole lot of value to them or not, but I, I think it would be it's it's a little more interesting to me to lay it that way than in purely a civil war context. So that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what more <laughs> to say about it. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a really interesting uh, time and place. You know, at this also time and place, there were actually um, th- there were actually political things that were going on at the time. That that you know, there's a context to this. There was the nullification crisis in 1832 and 1833 that was going on in South Carolina, where there was actually talks of nullification and South Carolina seceding. <coughs> As much as in 1831 uh, and 2, so here in December of 1832, this is very much in time and context of certain national events. So whether or not he was talking about those, you know, a prophecy of what he thought was going to be then versus what was going to happen you know, 30 years from then, um, I don't know. It's fun. You know, the more that I study that period of history from World War One on, the more I, I come to a realization that they're really, they're really, to our recorded history knowledge, there's nothing more horrific, no time, no period of time in history in which more vastly horrific things occurred. And, and what I mean by that isn't just like in degree, but also in, in numbers of, of people who, her, who were just, you know, 
either starved or brutally murdered in war or, or whatever. Just like the most awful things that you, that humanity can imagine to do all happened within this time period, you know, World War One and on, you know, uh, and we could we could name them all, but but there's there's a lot of them, a lot of them that we don't even talk about from a purely uh, American centric historical context. You know, the the Eastern Front between Russia and Germany in, in particular was just like possibly in the running for the worst thing that's ever happened in human history, right? And so um, this this whole statement of inhabitants of the earth will mourn and with famine, plague and earthquake and thunder and it really kind of, I mean, that kind of fits if you ask me. It's just, it, it's just the most, all the most awful things. I, I hate to. I don't want to end the podcast on that note, but <laughs> but it truly is that that truly is like that that really bears out there. That's there's not even hyperbole in that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to end the podcast on that note? <laughs> wherefore, wherefore stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. You know, we talk about this a lot in in terms of like geographic maybe places, right? And and then we try to. Say, oh well, this this can mean other other things about standing in holy places, and any anywhere that you physically are can be a holy place. It doesn't have to do with the place; it has to do with with how you what you see, right? And we talked about this many times in terms of the pure in heart shall see the face of God, and that that makes that holy. You know, you. As an individual, as a child of God, you make wherever you are holy, um, just by, just by being there. And so I think like standing in holy places means that you like, you, you live purposefully, right? Like intentionally living your life in a, in a way to come into that relationship with God and, and make it holy. Yeah. You know, in studying religious studies, one of the questions that's asked quite frequently is what is religious experience? And there's two dominant theories. One's called sui generis, which there are as many scholars who talk about this and it really talks about this, this concept of objective, absolute, real, holy space. That's, that's objectively spherical. And so you like, you step into it and you can step out of it. And then there's right. another idea that, there are experiences that we deem as holy and we deem as sacred. And so there are just experiences that humans have and we create and then give meaning to those experiences as sacred. And so it's, there's a, a manner of subjectivity to it. Whereas sui generis is objective, deeming is subject. And the romantic side of me, I think for the most of my life, I've been kind of in the sui generis side. And I love reading those who, who write on Eliade and, and a lot of different theologians and religious studies and philosophers who, who talk about this, this stuff. It really gets to be beautiful, the beautiful aspect of, of this. But that's the romantic side of myself, my, the, the practical side of myself. And I, and I think the one that wins out at the end of the day is that... I, I'm more and more and more becoming in, coming to the sphere of believing that we we create sacred space through deeming it and creating it ourselves and giving meaning to it ourselves through through modality. And we pour our intentionality into things, and it's pouring our intentionality into it that gives it meaning and sacredness. 
And so this call, and I like what she said there about standing in holy places and, and creating that space. Because to stand ye in holy places and be not moved, on kind of a sui generis side is like, wherever we're at is holy. But also on a, on a deemed side of it, wherever we're at is holy too, because that's what we create then and there too. So really on a sui generis or, a, or on a deemed, no matter what side of that debate you want to take, wherever you're at is holy. You can either stand there in holiness because that's who and what you are, or you stand there in holiness because you deem it holy. And you make it holy. And, and, and I think there's beauty there in that holiness because the call to stand in holy places can happen regardless of what side of that debate you want to stand on. Good. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Next week, we are going to be studying Section 88. And it's just going to be Section 88 because Section 88 is really long. <laughs> it's like a, it's, it's going to be like another 84 thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. 88 is another 84. 141 verses. Good gravy. It does. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff there. There's a lot of really good things to cover. And so we're going to talk about, uh, talk about a lot of really good, and I'm, I'm really excited for it. So until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.